Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant and health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of CMF Curo. Learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org and live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo. Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us will be attorney John Birch from the Alliance Defending Freedom, who was intimately involved in uh, bringing the case to the Supreme Court, known as the Dobbs decision. And he's going to talk about what it means for those in medical care, what it means for those who are human beings living in our country. Andrew, why are we preempting our normal schedule of shows to bring this one in sooner than most? Yeah, you know, there's there's those times in your life where people talk about where you were when you heard that type of thing. And I always think when I was a little kid, my mom would always tell us, you know, praying for the conversion of Russia and how how it felt when the wall came down. And I feel like this is kind of an analogous moment where since I was a little kid, this is something we pray for every single day. And thanks be to God, here it is. You always hope you'll see it. You're never sure. And now we're here. And so now what? And uh, I'm so excited. We got a lawyer. I love the lawyer stuff. And so he's going to dissect not only the legal aspects, but how it impacts healthcare and where we go from here. So I'm excited for the interview. Yeah. And uh, I met John earlier in the year at an event where I was a, the speaker and I got to sit with uh, him and he is just delightfully has an incredibly incisive and sharp mind. He is brilliant and fully Catholic. But before we go to that great interview, it's coming up sooner than usual. We do have our medical trivia question of the day. The category, unsurprisingly, is Roe v. Wade. Here's the question. On what medical school and healthcare system campus did Harry Blackman do research and write the opinion known as Roe v. Wade? Interestingly, while he was there doing this research, according to the local newspaper, the doors for a brand new medical school opened up and students started studying to become doctors. You're going to get the answer to that at the end of the show, but coming up after the break, we're going to have John Bursch and the meaning of the Dobbs decision for you and me here on Dr. Doctor. Welcome back for our special guest interview today in this uh, rather rapid release for us here at Dr. Doctor. We are recording this on Tuesday, June 28th to play the following Saturday because of a great thing that happened at the Supreme Court last Friday. Uh, who do we have today? John Bursch, JD. So he's a doctor, a jurist doctor. He's senior counsel, vice president of appellate advocacy with the Alliance Defending Freedom. He's argued 12 U.S. Supreme Court cases, three dozen state Supreme Court cases, and he has successfully litigated six matters with at least $1 billion at stake. Uh, now life is at stake, right? A recent study concluded that among all frequent Supreme Court advocates who did not work for the government, he had the third highest success rating for persuading justices to adopt his legal position. He's a sharp guy. He served as Solicitor General for the state of Michigan from 2011 to 13. He received his JD Magnum Cum Laude in 97 from the University of Minnesota Law School. Prior to that, he attended Western Michigan University, where he received degrees in mathematics and music performance, primary clarinet, but also for piano. John, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thank you. Pleased to be here, especially to be discussing this wonderful Supreme Court opinion. Yes, indeed. So what was your role with the Dobbs case? Well, uh, at the, the very outset, my organization, Alliance Defending Freedom, um, in developing a strategy to take down Roe versus Wade and Casey, um, started uh, advocating for a model bill that prohibited abortion after 15 weeks and protected life from that point forward. And that's the bill that Mississippi adopted. And so um, as Mississippi defended that bill in the courts, we were involved with them. Um, I worked very, very closely with the office in drafting the cert petition. That's the document that you submit to the Supreme Court justices asking them to take the case. And then Alliance Defending Freedom uh, and the state of Mississippi worked closely together after that on the briefing, on oral argument preparation. We coordinated oh. all the amici, friend of the court briefs. Uh, we also talked to them frequently about public advocacy, messaging, even down to the rally on the courthouse steps on the day of the argument. Uh, so we very much appreciate our friends in the Mississippi Attorney General's Office. 
And you can actually find the cert on the U.S. Supreme Court site, and it's very clearly written. Um, it's so well done. I'm, I'm sure you would have gotten an A in any law school. Thank you. <laughs> John, you know, for, for somebody who's not a lawyer, we see all of these different laws come up regarding abortion. What made this Mississippi law the one that made it all the way and was able to overturn Roe v. Wade? Well, a lot of it was God's providence, honestly. Um, the, the, the whole purpose of the cert petition was not necessarily to overrule Roe and Casey, although that invitation was in the brief. Um, at the time that it was filed, Justice Kennedy and Justice Ginsburg were still on the court. Justice Ginsburg, a very staunch um, supporter of abortion rights, and Justice Kennedy, the primary moving force for the three justices in Casey who kept Roe in place. Um, so initially, the goal wasn't necessarily to overrule Roe. It was to get rid of the viability line. And that was the strategy of a 15 weeks law, because viability is generally recognized to be about 22 to 23 weeks. And so 15 weeks was um, certainly below that line um, and yet strict enough that it would likely elicit a legal challenge from an abortion clinic, which is exactly what what happened. Um, so the, the whole goal of the, the cert petition was really to eliminate viability. Um, and if you could do that, then that would free up states to start passing 12-week laws, 10-week laws, fetal heartbeat laws, six-week laws, and things like that. And the hope was that in a future case, perhaps, then Roe would be overruled. Uh, but two important things happened in the, the time between when the case was heard and when it was first filed, and, and they, we were asking for that permission. And that is Justice Kennedy retired and Justice Ginsburg passed away. And they were replaced by Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett, respectively, um, who both were strong constitutional originalists, those who look at the constitutional provisions the way they were understood at the time that they were enacted. And of course, as the opinion explains, no one understood that there was a right to abortion when the Constitution was ratified or even when the 14th Amendment was ratified in the 1800s. And so at that point, the strategy shifted um, and, and it was logical to do so because the viability line had no basis in the Constitution. That was the argument in the cert petition. Well, Roe versus Wade and Casey don't have any basis in the Constitution. So how can you take viability away and still leave in place something which isn't grounded in the text, tradition, and history of the U.S. Constitution itself? Um, so there, there was a, an alternative argument towards the end of the merits brief about the viability line, uh, but pretty much most of the eggs in the basket were on overturning Roe and appropriately so. So what does this decision actually do? And what was the vote? Was it 6-3? Was it 5-4? Was it 5-1-3? 5-3-1? A lot of confusion about that. So there were six votes on the court to uphold Mississippi's law. So on the judgment, it was a 6-3 decision. Uh, but Got Chief it. Justice Roberts would have only addressed the viability line and would have left mm. the question of Roe and Casey's overruling for a future case. Five ah. justices thought that those decisions were just egregiously wrong, uh, their words, not mine. Uh, and they concluded that they needed to be excised from the record books, which is what they did. So on the judgment, Mississippi's law being upheld, 6-3. On Roe versus Wade being overruled, it was a 5-1-3. Five saying it should, one not taking a position, and then the three in dissent. Oh, wow. fascinating. Okay. So what you had mentioned some of the arguments for those who wanted to overrule Roe v. Wade. What were some of the key components of the dissenting opinions? Well, they, they said that this was an important right that was ensconced in the Constitution for nearly 50 years. They described it almost as a super precedent. Uh, but that really misses the whole point of an originalist analysis. If you're thinking about a constitution, a statute, or even a contract, it can have a meaning that changes over time. Because if it does, what you're doing is you're amending that document without consent by the parties to the contract or by the people to a, a statute or a constitution. Um, and so really the originalist approach that the majority used here, and, and the court is a majority of originalists now, um, is the only way that you can look at a document. And that is to ask, well, what would a reasonable person with a command of English have understood those words to mean at the time they were adopted? So the, the right to an abortion, at least since Casey, has been rooted in the 14th Amendment's due process clause, uh, which is just the, the right to life, liberty, um, you know, 
happiness, basically, all, all in accord with due process, that the government can't take away those things without due process. That the basic understanding is that if the government wanted to put you in jail, it couldn't do that without due process, giving you a judge and a jury and all the niceties that go with that. If they want to take your property in an eminent domain or condemnation action, they have to give you process. Even if they want to do something to you in an agency proceeding, they have to give you process. Uh, but, you know, starting with the sexual revolution and a case called Griswold, which involved yes, versus Connecticut. Yes. Right. They, they started to, to, to view this due process clause as giving substantive rights, too. But those substantive rights aren't defined anywhere in the text. The court just kind of made them up. And that was certainly true of the right to abortion. So what the majority that Griswold case was a contraception case, wasn't it? 1967. Yes. It was a state law that prohibited the dispensation of contra artificial contraception mm -hmm. to non-married people. Um, and, and, you know, obviously you knew why you had those laws. It was to make sure that sexual relations only took place within marriage. And right. once those laws started to, to fall away, you have the sexual revolution. But Not you know, surprising that, that this preceded abortion jurisprudence. Yes. Yeah, without that precedent, the Roe case would have been virtually right. impossible. So, so what this court does is it goes all the way back to when the 14th Amendment was adopted in the 1800s and says, well, what was the understanding of a right to abortion then? And it clearly did not exist because every single state prohibited abortion. Uh, the vast majority, the majority of them did so from conception. You know, there's this concept of quickening. Um, about a third of the states only um, prohibited abortion criminally after quickening. But even in the aftermath of the 14th Amendment, those states quickly came on board so that by the early 1900s, all 50 states criminalized the provision of abortions beginning at conception. And that wow. pervaded right up until the time um, that Roe was decided. At that point, only a couple of states had retreated from that provision or that, that position. So to, to say that somehow the 14th Amendment and the adoption of that substantive or procedural due process clause, however you characterize it, you know, caused people to understand that abortion was now a fundamental right is a complete falsity. It's a fabrication. So, so exactly what happens because of the Dobbs case decision and what doesn't happen that many people are fear-mongering does happen? Uh, first, it, it does wipe Roe and Casey off the books. And so there is no constitutional right to abortion. Now, some commentators describe that as taking away a right that's not true. It's a right that never existed. It would be as it's like an that, annulment. It's like an annulment. Exactly. Void for ab, ab initio. Um, it would be like if the Supreme Court had said that the sky was purple, according to the Constitution in 1973. <laughs> well, that wasn't true then and it's not true today. So no right, <laughs> right. was taken away. It just recognized that no right ever appeared in the ever Constitution. Ever existed. Okay. Um, the court did not go farther, as some of the friends of the court briefs, the amici briefs argued, to say that the protection of life in the 14th Amendment actually protects life from conception and would make it unconstitutional to allow abortions in any form in states like California and New York. The court did not do that. In addition, although the, the court targeted abortion um, and, and said that this couldn't be part of any understanding of the 14th Amendment at the time of its ratification, it did not go so far as to overrule other cases that similarly rely on substantive due process. Um, they, they said those could be analyzed differently under stare decisis, which is the fancy Latin term for when a court um, a, you know, just follows its earlier rulings, even if they're wrong. Right. And so things like that Griswold case involving artificial contraception that we were talking about, or um, the right to same-sex marriage in the Obergefell case, all of those come from this same due process clause. Uh, the, the court says that this case does not impact those in any way. Um, the dissent you know, took issue with that. Justice Thomas took issue with that. He wrote a concurrence saying he thinks all those precedents should be revisited because the whole substantive due process doctrine is ridiculous and, and not part of the Constitution. But the five justices in the majority or the other four justices in the majority said, no, you know, the life beginning at conception being a constitutional principle, we're not going to decide that. And we're not touching any of the other cases invoking substantive due process. Have there been other cases where the substantive due process has been kind of thrown out, or is this really the first time that's been kind of thrown out? It's the first time that a previous decision recognizing a substantive due process right was overruled. But there have been other cases where the court has said there is no substantive due price process right at all. So, for example, there was a very famous case involving a right to assisted suicide. And the claim that like same-sex marriage, like abortion, like contraceptives, um, the 14th Amendment protected the right to take your own life with a doctor's assistance. And what the court did in that case, it said, 
um, you have to look at the, um, the, the particular right and whether it is deeply rooted in the histories and traditions of our country and so part of the, the ordered liberty that we can't imagine a country without it. And that's the same principle that the majority applied in this case to say that Roe was wrongly decided because abortion had no deep roots in our country's history. As I just explained, it was always yes. criminal up until Roe was decided. Um, and it was not part of our concept of ordered liberty at the time the 14th Amendment was adopted. So, so John, do you think that this is going to end up saving lives or will it just shift to where abortions occur to other certain states in the country? Well, there are certainly going to be other states that have already declared themselves sanctuaries for abortion, you know, which is a misnomer because a sanctuary is a place of safety and healing. And these are really death traps um, because they're going to be allowed for the taking of innocent human life. So leaving that aside, there will be states that do that. However, just the fact that the decision has come in means that countless lives will be saved because in those states that and there'll be many um, that protect life from the moment of conception, that choice will then have to be made in a much more serious way. It's not like going down the street to a clinic. It's, do I want to incur all of the, the expense, even if my employer pays for it and the time to fly to California and have my abortion? And then just one anecdote about that. Um, here in Michigan a few years ago, um, when I was in the attorney general's office, we had a, a case where there was a woman who was a minor in the foster care system and she became pregnant and wanted to have an abortion. And the, the ombudsman for the foster care system had to give her consent to do that because of a parental consent law that we had in place. It either had to be the consent of a parent or guardian, he was the guardian, or uh, a court could do it. And he, he gave that consent. And based on Michigan's 1931 pro-life law, which does criminalize abortions, yes, we yes. intervened and said that that represented Michigan's pro-life policy and that no administrative official had the ability to consent to a minor's abortion. Court agreed wow. So that young woman had the ability to go back to the judge and say, well, then I want the consent from you. But in the week to 10 days where all this transpired and she had to stop and think about the consequences of what she was doing, she changed her mind and she kept the baby and wow. has a beautiful child today as a result of that. And so, you know, in miniature, you can see now how that will play out across the country if half or more of our states uh, protect life from conception, that people will be forced to think a little harder about that decision. And they may certainly recognize the value of life, all the while surrounded by a culture that embraces the dignity of unborn life. And I, I think that will have great effects. Now, so, you know, that's that's an amazing story. And it, it kind of begs the question about the different approaches we're going to see in the different states. Do you, do you think some of the more radical states that like abortion are going to continue kind of pushing the envelope over, playing their hand. I've even heard of maybe infanticide in Colorado. Are these fears overblown or is that kind of what we're looking at in the future? Well, you know, it sounds overblown, but it's actually not. Um, you know, we've already seen states like New York, you know, celebrating by lighting up the Empire State Building with a pink light, uh, the taking of innocent human life right up to the moment of birth, a fully formed nine-month baby that unquestionably could survive outside the womb without any medical assistance. And, and they, they giddily passed a law that would allow you to take the life of, of that baby. And, and when you look at the, the moral philosophers who talk about the, this issue of, of innocent life, they can't draw the line at birth. Uh, to a philosopher, uh, a two-year-old, because they can't survive on their own. You, you still need the parent there to take care of them and provide their basic needs. Uh, they don't have the maturity that an adult does. They don't have the cognitive processes that a, an adult does. You know, they, they would say that you've got the ability to take your child's life if they're inconvenient to you up until the age of reason, you know, around six, seven, eight years old. Um, so when you've got a, a culture of death, as you can see, you know, places like Planned Parenthood and Whole Women's Health promoting um, it, it's not a big leap to say, okay, the month or the second before birth, I can take that life. Why can't I take the life after it's been born? Um, so it's not unrealistic to worry about that going forward. So, John, what about like here in Indiana, where Andrew and I are, where the district attorney for the county where Indianapolis is said that they will not enforce, um, you know, arresting abortionists if they perform abortions and we are an abortion free or limited state? Well, that, that shows why elections are important, because prosecutors have discretion which cases to pursue. And so there's no remedy for an Indiana citizen to force a prosecutor to prosecute a case if the prosecutor chooses not to. But you have two options. One is to go to the attorney general of the state. And if they're pro-life, 
then they can enforce criminal law anywhere in the state, even over the objection of a local county or district attorney. Um, in addition, those officials are elected. And so if you live in a county or a district where you have a pro-choice uh, prosecutor and they refuse to take on these cases, then that should be a defining issue of the next campaign and they should be replaced by someone who will enforce the law. And, and I think that over time, um, what, what this Dobbs case does for us you know, as a, a country, but also in local situations like that, it allows everyday citizens to see what an abortion-free culture looks like and that women oh. won't be dying in back alleys um, that they won't be losing the opportunity to go to college or advance in their career tracks, that through the assistance of family, friends, churches, and even governments, that they'll be able to get through that and enjoy living with their beautiful children and actually decide that this was a better outcome than taking their child's life would have been. And, and you'll start to see a, a change of heart and mind in local county prosecutors and even in places like California and New York, because the boogeyman of pro-life legislation will not be something they can just cast aspersions at. It'll be something that's actually happening on the ground in half of the country and not causing all the adverse consequences that they're predicting. Um, so, you know, again, we talked that's about- That's a great point. With lives. Really there, there's gonna be a forward momentum here that wasn't possible before Dobbs, simply because no state had the ability before viability uh, to, to stop these abortions. What about health insurance plans in states that may outlaw abortion? Are those plans still allowed to cover abortion? Well, most affect states, them at all? Yeah, most states, and, and I, I don't have a list, but at least, at least most of them would have a law that says you cannot insure illegal conduct. That, that's a kind of a blanket insurance rule. So uh, an insurance company could not insure you in case you murdered someone or robbed somebody's house. That's just sure. not allowed. And so it would be entirely up to the insurance regulatory agency within your state to tell all insurance providers who provide insurance in your state, this is now an illegal procedure in Indiana. As a result, you cannot cover it anymore. Wow. I'm, I'm wondering about the, the doctors and practitioners who perform abortions if they're in a state that outlaws abortion, what do they do? You know, does Planned Parenthood just start trying to get people to travel or are there workarounds that we're anticipating? You know, what what do you foresee? Yeah, well, in, in some states, they really are just pulling up stakes and kind of folding up shop. Um, I heard in Wisconsin that Planned Parenthood is closing all of its clinics and it's not going to be accepting any more abortions there. Yeah, I mean, what? that, that, that wow. could change. There was a lawsuit filed today by the pro-choice governor and um, the pro-choice attorney general to try to invalidate Wisconsin's pro-life law. Uh, but, but Planned Parenthood was not willing to take that risk. Um, in other instances, what you'll see are abortion providers moving to nearby states if they allow abortions there and then trying to encourage people to come across. Um, the biggest workaround, and this is very disappointing, um, we saw from corporate America uh, for companies like Disney, uh, you know, supposed to be so family friendly, um, Starbucks and many, many others, um, they announced immediately that they would offer a benefit where you could travel to another state and they would pay up to four to $5,000 for any expenses incurred in traveling in order to get their abortion in a state where it's legal. Um, so there are going to be attempts to work around um, and, and those may or may not have success. Um, you know, if here's one scenario, you know, where a pro-life um, movement might be able to push back. Say that um, you've got your, your Indiana law, which makes you a pro-life state, but obviously um, Illinois is still very pro-choice. I think they declared themselves an oasis instead of a sanctuary. Um, maybe they decided that sanctuary wasn't the best word after all. <laughs> so let's say an Indiana abortion provider moves across the border into Illinois and they're soliciting patients in Indiana. Patients are coming to them from Indiana. They're sending them back. You know, at, at some point, you could say that effectively they're operating a clinic in Indiana, but they've just removed themselves across the border. And you know, mm -hmm. there may be remedies that the state could pursue in that instance where they could claim that the criminal activity was happening within their state. Um, you know, and then you'd have complicated questions about whether they could extradite those individuals. You know, but at a minimum, if the, the Indiana abortion provider working right across the state line happened to travel back through Indiana, then they could probably be arrested and prosecuted for violating the law. Um, but th there's a lot of um, you know, interesting legal issues like that, abortion across state lines that are going to be litigated in the courts over the next several years. And, and many of these, we still need answers. Well, let's take a break now and go into our second half of the interview shortly here with, with John Bursch on Dr. Doctor. 
And we're back with Dr. Doctor and today talking to JD Doctor John Bursch about the Dobbs case. John, what, you know, especially on the medical side of things, there's so many side avenues that this could go down. One of the things that was raised to us is the idea of telemedicine. We saw this a lot with COVID. What does this mean for telemedicine and abortion? Can a physician in California prescribe abortive pills for somebody in a pro-life state like Texas? Well, that, that's a difficult legal question that's going to take a while to sort out. But, you know, some, some things that will be in play, um, you know, first of all, is whether you can send an abortion medication across state lines into a state that is pro-life and has a pro-life law. Um, there's a federal law called the Comstock Law um, yes. that states can enforce no mailing or of indecent or immoral materials. Um, and, and certainly if a state considers an abortion pill to be an instrument of death, uh, that would seem to fall within the definition of an immoral uh, material. Now, there's been some suggestions in the last couple of days by the, the administration in D.C. that FDA regulations um, that approve those types of pills would override any of those concerns. But I'm not at all convinced that that's right uh, because FDA regulations merely set a floor for safety. They don't set a ceiling. So in the mm-hmm. same way that when the EPA says you can only have this much mercury or lead in your water or your, your ground, California can have a much higher standard of Undercut safety. It, yeah. a, a state could do exactly the same thing with an FDA regulation that says something like this is safe. So then there's a separate question about the, the practice of telemedicine, and that gets into some of the you know virtual clinics being inside the state issue that we were talking about, whether you could extradite yes. that person. But at a bare minimum, a, a state should be able to pass laws that would prohibit that kind of practice that uh, occurs without any in-person doctor visit. Uh, because as, as I'm sure you both know, there are many dangers associated with taking those pills if the doctor can't verify with an in-person visit what the stage of the pregnancy is. Big difference if you're taking one of those pills at three weeks of a pregnancy versus 15 weeks. Um, or if there's some other underlying health conditions that might have an interaction with the pill's effects that the doctor can't anticipate through a telemed visit. And so even in that situation, uh, a pro-life law requiring an in-person visit would be an important piece of the puzzle. So, John, what questions have you not been asked that you wish you were asked about this decision and its consequences? Well, one we, we've touched on already, and it's really not a legal question, but it's a, a societal question, is what impact is this decision going to have on the culture? And as I mentioned, yes. if you've got you know half the states or more that have these flourishing pro-life cultures that, that value unborn life, um, other states are going to see that that kind of culture works. And I I suspect that that culture will have all kinds of downstream effects, that when you value human life, um, you also tend to value elderly life and you don't see desires to take elderly patients' lives because they have to be in nursing homes. You value life even though there may be mental or physical disabilities. Um, you know, that's that's great for that community. Um, you know, even acts of violence and things like that, you know, it's it's much easier to, to walk into a school with a gun and start firing it if you live in a culture that says the taking of an innocent baby's life is okay and we have no problem with that. Um, you know, so I, I think we're going to see pro-life states transform culture and that other states will look at that the same way that people do when they look at Catholicism and say, wow, you know, look how good that is. I want a piece of that. And, and so that's a question that more people should be asking. Um, in addition, uh, we, we should be asking, what power does Congress have or not have to oh yes, to yes, nationally on this? And, and we may have been getting to that anyway. But I, I want to look at both sides of that coin. Um, first, you have the issue of whether Congress could pass a law with the president's signature that would make this a pro-life country. You know, that would take a, a law like Indiana's and then apply it across the country. And I think the answer to that is probably yes, because when uh, the, the federal government prohibits an abortion, taking of an innocent human life, it's impacting interstate commerce and and instruments of abortion that travel in interstate commerce. And the Supreme Court has always said that the the court can regulate those kinds of things when goods move in in commerce. And so that's why we have a federal partial birth abortion ban that has always withstood challenges. Well, I I think you could ratchet that up and make it a full pro-life law. But now look at the flip side. Um, you know, let's say that pro-choice advocates took control of both houses of Congress. They eliminate the filibuster. Could they impose abortion as a rule on the country? And I think to the, end, the answer to that is probably not, because if you're prohibiting abortion, then you're not regulating commerce. You're, what you're doing is, is regulating nothing. You're prohibiting anything from happening. And in other cases involving similar types of laws, um, the Violence Against Women Act is one that immediately comes to mind. The court has said that Congress does not have a Commerce Clause power to regulate in that situation. 
The only other way that Congress gets to regulate then is under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, which allows them to enforce equal protection rights across the country. But the U.S. Supreme Court in the Dobbs decision itself said that there is no equal protection right to abortion. So the two avenues that Congress has to create a national right to abortion, uh, neither one of those works as a matter of law and policy. So whereas you could have a pro-life national law, I don't think that you could have a national pro-choice law. Man, that so is that, absolutely fascinating. There's a lot of people talking about that right now. And uh, especially if the filibuster wasn't there, that'd be a big risk. But it, it sounds like maybe that's something that we don't need to be worried about too much. Well, we, we need to worry about everything. But th- there would certainly be <laughs> a legal claim that you could make in court and litigate probably all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court uh, that would have a lot of merit. So we are a medical show. We are concerned about training the next generation of doctors. What effect, if any, will this have on medical training in all states, whether they become pro-life or not? Well, right right off the bat, this Dobbs decision is one of the best things that could have happened to pro-life medical students uh, because there were there were there were movements, as, as you probably are aware, in the medical profession that to have accreditation medical schools would be required to put their OBGYN students through abortion training. It would be mandatory in order for you to be accredited. And and you could see Planned Parenthood pushing that through the American Medical Association. Well, Dobbs stops that in its tracks because the American Medical Association can't be pushing an accreditation standard that's illegal in half of the states. And so if you're a (laughs) pro-medical student, you're going to be thinking very seriously when you're deciding between the medical school in Indiana or the one in California. Um, yeah. When you want to go to when one is a pro-life state and one is a pro-choice on demand state, it makes a huge difference. That you know, is good news. John, in, in previous shows, we've talked about the church amendment and the coat snow amendment as things that, you know, people who were against abortion and in healthcare could point to and say, I don't have to participate in that. Does the Dobb decision affect those in any way? Well, I I would say it strengthens those because something that pro-choice administrations have done federally is try to work their way around that through regulations by defining a failure to perform abortion as sex discrimination Um, through through agency regulation, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. That's why it was so important that in the last presidential administration, they pushed through those, those Title IX funding regulations that doubled down on the protection of religious liberty and freedom interests for doctors who did not want to perform abortions. Well, if there's no constitutional right to an abortion, and more than half the states say that life is protected from the moment of conception, it becomes very, very difficult for the federal government to try to work around through agency regulations, those religious liberty protecting statutes. So that this is like giving them an added bubble of protection around the outside. And that makes me feel more confident that they will hold up. Wow. Well, we are working through this. There is so much good news that I did not uh, anticipate. Um, so I-, I was shocked that you said that Planned Parenthood is already pulling up in states, yet we, we mentioned in Indianapolis, you know, he's prob- the DA, the current prosecuting attorney, is not going to uh, prosecute. Are you surprised that Planned Parenthood is that scared in these other states? I was shocked that they pulled up stakes in Wisconsin. Uh, when I, I learned that, I almost fell out of my chair. Uh, that was even more surprising than the Dobbs decision itself, which we all kind of expected once the, the opinion was leaked a couple months ago. Um, now, but is that they, because they, of the well, 19th century pro-life law Wisconsin still has on the books? It is. And the risk that their abortion um, doctors could be criminally prosecuted under that law. Um, so, you know, maybe not every prosecutor will prosecute, but some certainly will. Um, here in Michigan, um, we yes. have a 1931 law. And uh, in Kent County, which is the area that encompasses Grand Rapids, that the county prosecutor said that he would enforce the 1931 law, even though its operation has been enjoined as against the attorney general uh, by a Planned Parenthood lawsuit. Um, so there, there are going to be courageous people who move forward with those prosecutions. And the fear yeah. of criminal liability may, in some instances, cause state Planned Parenthood affiliates to say it's not worth that risk. Wow. What, what do we anticipate this does to the actual number of abortions? You know, it, that's... Undeniably will come down. Um, okay. you know, I, I think that's been the experience in Texas, where they, they passed that very unique law that was pre-Dobbs that allowed a citizen... Uh, to basically bring a civil lawsuit and extract a $10,000 fine against an abortionist or an abortion clinic if an abortion was performed. And and immediately the number of abortions dropped, even though 
Um, some people did go to neighboring states to have abortions. The total number of abortions in Texas dropped. So I, I think there's going to be an initial decrease caused by clinics being shut down, clinics pulling up stakes as happened in Wisconsin. Um, that number will be exacerbated because when the law teaches that life is valuable from conception, people will naturally think twice about taking the life of their unborn child. Um, you're going to have these um, transactional frictions that we were talking about uh, earlier, um, where if there's a, a, a logistical hurdle where you have to fly to California to get your abortion, that will cause more people to not get abortion. And then generally this flourishing culture of life, which I think is going to overwhelm the country like a tidal wave over the next five years, as people in California see how good it is to live in Indiana. I mean, who, who would have thought that uh, before? <laughs> Uh, that, that the people in Indiana have a culture of life, and that's something that's worthy of emulating, not something that they should be criticizing. So, and John, what next for the pro-life movement? Is there a March for Life every year anymore in D.C.? Do they become state level? What would you suggest? There, there is so much work to do. Uh, people need to understand that Dobbs is not the, the end of the, the pro-life movement. It's really the beginning of the second chapter of what could be a very long novel. Now, with respect to the March for Life, I hope we move it to celebrate Dobbs Decision Day so we can march in June instead of in January. <laughs> <laughs> that is, uh, that's very good advice. I hope somebody's listening oh to that one. <laughs> um, you know, but, but in addition to that, um, in, in pro-life states where we have pro-life legislatures and governors, we need to put more legislation on the books. That includes not only protecting life from conception, uh, but prohibiting the importation of things like morning after pills, uh, prohibiting telemed visits unless there's an in-person doctor visit in that state. You know, all, all the other creative ways that pro-life um, legislators have worked over the years, you know, this is their chance to really have an impact. So, you know, that, that's another place. Um, elections are going to be crucial. Um, yes. You know, Think about the, the national election this fall in the Senate. If we have a pro-choice majority Senate and a House that are big enough to override a Senate filibuster, uh, President Biden has already sworn he would sign a national abortion into law. Yes, we have legal arguments against the legality of that, but that would instantly put a freeze on every state's pro-life law until that could be enjoined or overturned. So you know, that's absolutely critical. We also talked about the state attorney general's races and the, the prosecuting attorney's races. You know, again, critical. You know, look to your local right to life chapter and look at their endorsements and make sure that you know who you're voting for. Uh, that this is just an absolutely critical issue. And then there's just a lot of pro-life evangelization that needs to continue to happen. Uh, we've been doing this for 49 years and the needle has absolutely shifted. The Supreme Court would not do what it did in Dobbs unless there was a, a climate, a culture of life in this country that made it possible for that to happen. But we can't stop. You know, we're, we're a long way from the finish line. John, you're a lawyer and you follow all these different laws. What what does it look like in the pro-life states? Is everybody more or less going for a complete ban? Is it going to be different in each state? What do you think? I think it's going to be different in each state. There will be many states, I believe, that will you know adopt or have already adopted, have trigger laws to adopt, uh, laws that protect life beginning at conception. But in other states that you know are even mostly pro-life, they may be hesitant to go that far. And so we're going to see more 12-week laws, six-week laws, things of that nature. Um, another thing to keep an eye on are state Supreme Courts. And that's another place where we have an opportunity through elections, either direct elections of justices or elections of governors who choose justices. States do those in different ways. Um, yes. But the, the state Supreme Court justices will end up having some say about law as well. In Michigan, for example, our pro-choice governor filed a lawsuit along with Planned Parenthood in a separate lawsuit, challenging our 1931 pro-life law. And inevitably, that's going to end up in the Michigan Supreme Court. And so the, the, the views and the constitutional approach of the justices on that bench are going to matter a great deal. And even in states where they might like to have a protection for unborn life going all the way to conception, they may have a state Supreme Court that ensconces a 12-week limit in their own state constitution. Um, so that, that's another way that states will differ, but another area where as pro-life advocates, we have an opportunity to make a difference. It seems because like typically so, much within... of our, so much of our attention is always on the national politics when it comes to pro-life, but it seems like the shift now is going to be very much to the local politics, to the people who actually, now they're making the laws that they couldn't before maybe. Well, we, we can't keep our eye off the Senate and the, the White House, uh, as we just discussed. So I, I hope no one forgets that the national elections are still going to be important. But, but yes, the focus will become the states. And that's really what Dobbs is all about. Um, you know, at the right. time that Roe was decided, 
Um, only a couple of states had retreated from the criminalization of abortion beginning at conception. Uh, but there was a national debate that was beginning about what the rule should be. And that debate was cut short unnecessarily by a Supreme Court decision that just assumed for itself all the policymaking power of every legislature in the country, just ended things right then. Even Justice Ginsburg, a very staunch pro-choice proponent, um, said that, that Roe was wrong and that it, it stopped that debate too early. This is the chance to have that debate in the state legislatures, in our local cities. Um, you know, e even if you have a, a, a state like California that has a, a pro-choice law, there may be opportunities to enact pro-life legislation at the local level that don't conflict with it. Um, and, and as pro-life advocates, we should be pursuing those opportunities. You know, and this means going door to door, uh, talking to our neighbors, talking to our friends and family members, preaching the gospel of life, and then making sure that we get behind and, and put our time and our talent and our treasure behind candidates who will defend our views. John, what do you think about the kind of double Catholic feast day on which the um, uh, the decision was announced? It was June 24th, which is typically the, uh, the solemnity of the birth of John the Baptist, which got pushed a day earlier because it was the solemnity of the Sacred Heart of Jesus this year. I think that was more than just coincidence. I think that was divine. <laughs> I mean, obviously, the Sacred Heart of Jesus, uh, you know, he was looking out for all of us. But there's something special about you know, that, that Catholic um, feast day eclipse that happened with John the Baptist. Because if you go all the way back, um, as you know, John the Baptist leapt in the womb as soon as yes. Mary walked in with baby Jesus in utero. And if there's a better description of the, the value and the beauty of life in utero in the Bible than that passage, I can't think of it. So for it to happen on those two feast days um, was really beautiful. John, as, as we go forward, what what kind of, we, we always like to give people kind of homework. What should the pro-life community do going forward? Well, first, figure out who the right to life organization is in your state. There may be a couple of them and, and get on their mailing list so that you can start getting more information about what's happening in your state. Um, the, the legislation and the litigation in court is going to happen very, very quickly. And as we know, we cannot rely on mainstream media sources for that kind of information. So the first thing is to be informed. Um, the second thing is to go back and study the Catholic Church's teachings on why life is valuable, worthy of protection from the moment of conception, that we're all made in the image and likeness of, of God. But in addition to study what I'll call pro-life apologetics, and, and these are the sources that, that teach people how to talk about abortion with a coworker or with a family member uh, that doesn't have any reference to the Bible, that doesn't have any reference to the catechism of the Catholic Church, but merely using logic and reason can help lead them to that same place so that we can start having those conversations. Once you've got those two things down, you're informed about what's happening and you're informed about the issues both from our faith perspective, but also from a, a non-faith moral perspective, then figure out how you can get involved. You know, simple things like praying and going to adoration over these issues, everybody should be able to do that. Um, you know, 40 days for life opportunities, going and praying in front of an abortion clinic. That's not a huge lift. Not everybody's comfortable doing that, but many people could be called to that. You know, then getting more active. Would you be willing to go door to door and actually campaign on behalf of a prosecutor that you know will uphold your state's pro-life laws? Now, that's an important thing. Have you contacted your legislator while your right to life organization in your state will help you figure out who your representative and your senator are and what kind of letters you can send to them that might be effective and can impact them when they're considering pro-life legislation that the right to life lobbyist is putting in front of them to consider uh, voting on in the next legislative session. So there, there are John, so many things that we can be doing. In your years working in this, what seems to turn the needle the most on uh, individual interactions, especially we're talking about this, can be so contentious? What seems to work the best? Well, first is to listen, because many of the people who are most dyed-in-the-wool pro-choice have taken that position because something horrible happened to them. They may have had an unintended pregnancy and had an abortion. And, you know, we're, we're all made with the truth written on our hearts. So deep inside them, they know that what they did was wrong. They took the life of their child, but they've, they've got tremendous emotional wounds as a result of that. You know, walking up to them and saying, well, why aren't you pro-life? Let me give you five reasons why you should be, um, is not going to be very effective. <laughs> <laughs> so 
good listeners, and we need to build those personal relationships first. Then the next thing I think is to be non-confrontational. And to do that, I would suggest asking more questions than giving more statements. You know, just some examples using some of the pro-life apologetics that we, we've been talking about. Well, you know, w- would you think that it would be okay for someone to take the life of their baby uh, just after it's been born in the hospital? You know, they, they see that, that the baby's born, it's completely healthy, it's going to be just fine, um, but it's a boy and they wanted a girl. And so they say to the doctor, take it away and kill it. You know, would, would that be okay? More than 95% of people will agree that that is morally abhorrent and that you should never do that. Well, why should it make any difference the day of the pregnancy or the, the, the birth as opposed to the day before? You know, and then kind of work your way backwards. And, sure. and as they come up with the arguments, as the baby's getting smaller and more immature, um, you know, all, all those arguments fall neatly into things that we can explain. Well, you know, two-year-olds don't have the mental capacity of adults, but we don't allow the taking of their life. So why would you allow the taking of a, a baby even at one week's gestation? Um, elderly people can't take care of themselves. They need assistance, uh, you know, if they've got Alzheimer's or other diseases. You know, that, that's why we give them round-the-clock care. So should we be allowed to murder them? Well, why should it be any different when you're talking about the unborn baby at one week's gestation? You, you kind of get the idea. Yes. And so, so if you listen, you have relationship and you ask questions and cause people to think about the issue, then you can get them there much easier than if you stand on your bully pulpit, you know, flash uh, pictures of aborted babies in front of them or, or some of those types of things. Um, confrontation is usually not nearly as effective as walking alongside someone in faith. That's beautiful. Last question. If there's one thing that you want listeners to remember from the Dobbs decision, what do you want it to be? Wow, that, that's a really good question. Um, I think it would be that because there is no constitutional right, this issue is left to the people working through the democratic process, through their state legislatures and ballot initiatives. Because what the court makes clear is we're wiping our hands of this. We're no longer in the abortion business. Now it's on all of you. What are you going to do about it? Beautiful ending. John Birch, thank you so much for being with us here on this special episode of Dr. Doctor. And we are back with the trivia question on Dr. Doctor. Tom, take it away. So the question is, on what medical school and healthcare system campus did Harry Blackman do research and write the opinion for Roe v. Wade? And as a bonus part of that, while he was there, this medical school actually opened its doors for the first day. Oh, wow. So you'll ask, how did I know this? Because sad to say, it was on the campus where I went to medical school about um, 13 years to 16 years after that. Yes, it was at Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota. uh, And the medical school opened its uh, doors on September 5th, 1972, And the uh, Post Bulletin uh, newspaper in Mayo said that black men spent almost every day for two weeks, late August and early September of 1972, researching the opinion he wrote. And that was released in January of 1973, known as Roe v. Wade, which has now been annulled. Thanks be to God. Man, that's incredible. Yeah, the Mayo Clinic. I didn't know the answer to that, but I suspected when Tom comes up with a medical school question, it's usually Mayo. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Harry Blackman was um, a counsel for the clinic from 1950 to 59. Oh, interesting. He was a lawyer for Mayo Clinic. So, Andrew, uh, tough job. Top three takeaways. There, There could be 10 or 12. Yeah, everything's a gem. I guess number one for me, kind of selfishly in the medical realm, this is a huge thing for medical training for all the students out there, um, not only physicians, but other uh, specialties and, you know, affiliated providers and stuff. They can't tie your accreditation to performing or participating in abortion if you do your training in a state where it might be illegal. So that's a huge joy because that was a real risk for a lot of folks. That'd be number one. Yes. I'd say number two he brought up the great point a couple of times about the juxtaposition that there's going to be between the pro-choice states that expand abortion and the pro-life states that maybe eliminate it completely. And we're going to be able to see it flourish, you know, and the pro-choice states are going to look and say, 
What's different about them? I want that. And so it also is going to give us an opportunity for different legal approaches. So we'll be able to find out what laws are the best ones. So like, I, I, I really like that. I like uh, when we were off air, you were bringing up an old episode we did with Senator Rick Santorum about 50 yeah. test tubes. What do you mean yeah, by that? I, I, I think that has always been one of the potential strengths of America is that we steal other people's good ideas and ditch <laughs> the bad ideas. And instead of trying one thing at a time in D.C., we can try 50 things at a time and quickly sift out the bad ideas and get down to the good stuff. So I'm excited about that. And I guess that brings me to my third point, which yes. is kind of the, the call to action. Um, you know, all those assistant prosecutors that you didn't care about before, uh, they matter a lot now. So <laughs> local elections matter. Uh, it might not make the national newspapers, but that's going to be what you're living with. And now this is something that we get to deal with and uh, you sleep in the bed you make. So go and vote in your local elections. Andrew, great summary. Boy, John Bursch was was wonderful. We might just have to have him back again. So thank you, listeners, for being with us for yet another episode of Dr. Doctor. You can find this and all our old episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. Just click on Episode Archive at the top where you can search over 270 episodes by topic or guest. That number keeps getting bigger, Tom. And <laughs> not only that, but we now have a video version of our podcast. If you didn't hear about it yet, you can check out our YouTube channel and get there through our website, drdoctor.org. Additionally, if you have a question or a great idea for an episode topic, click Submit a Question, and we'd love great ideas. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Andrew Mullally, and we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Doctor Show and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Plus, find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.